Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? It seems like a, a simple question that we should know the answer to, especially we're, we're here in a church. You would think we would know what the answer to that question is. But it's one that even those who profess to follow Christ can sometimes get wrong or at least have an incomplete pic- picture of. They may have a sense of who Jesus is, but may not quite understand fully. In fact, just this week, uh, Lifeway published a survey where they asked people who professed faith in Christ or who called themselves evangelicals and asked them questions about basic things about who Jesus was like that. And most of the answers were right, but the survey revealed that 73% of people who say they're evangelicals believe that Jesus was created by God. Jesus was created by God. And maybe you think that, but the Bible tells us that Jesus was not created by God. He always existed with his heavenly Father. In fact, believing that Jesus was created by God, that was a big heresy in the ancient church. Now you may say, well, what's really the big deal about that? And I could talk about why that's a big deal, but I think at the very least, it shows us that we assume we know a lot more about Jesus than we actually do. We may go to church, we may pray, and we may assume, oh, I know who Jesus is. I know what he stands for. He stands for the things I stand for and that I care about. Well, maybe, though, answering the question, who is Jesus, maybe the most important question that you need to answer. I'd say it's the most important question of all, combined with not only who is Jesus, but do you know him? And the best place to discover the answer to those questions is to look at his word, his truth that God has given us, this inspired word. And so for that reason, to really understand who Jesus is and the difference that makes in our lives, we're going to start a new series going through the gospel according to Mark. And this book is going to take us on a journey of discovery. Part of the reason I picked Mark, it's, hey, it's the shortest gospel, but it's also the most action-packed. Through Jesus's actions, we see who he is and come to understand why that's important. This book, though, may challenge our understanding of who we think Jesus is. What we read might not match the picture that we have in our heads. He may call us to live in a way that makes us uncomfortable, that pushes against the way we've been living our lives. This week, we're going to see exactly the most important part to start understanding who Jesus is, that he is the Son of God. That's what the beginning of this book is going to make clear. And the author of our book, Mark, the first character we meet, John the Baptist, even God himself establishes right at the beginning for us that we're going to understand who Jesus is. It's important to see that he is the Son of God. So we're going to start today with the first 11 verses. If you're not already there, I'd encourage you to turn your Bibles to the book of Mark, the gospel according to Mark. We're starting chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. If you want to use that blue Bible that's in the seat back in front of you, it should be on page 994. And once you are there, I'd ask, if you are able, would you please stand to honor the reading of God's Word, and then follow along as I read our passage for today. So I'm going to be reading from Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. The book begins this way. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Verse 4 tells us that John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea, all Jerusalem, were going out to him, were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair. He wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And then verse 9 tells us, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Let's pray. God, as we begin to look at your word and the coming days, help us to see anew, afresh, the answer to this question, who is Jesus? For this morning, God, I pray that you would captivate our minds with the truth that he is the Son of God. The author of our book, Mark, says that's who he is. The prophet you raised up, John the Baptist, declares that's who he is. And God, you yourself say that Jesus is the Son of God us to understand why that's important, but help us to focus on him, on Christ. To borrow words that John the Baptist says elsewhere, God, I pray that in this time he, Jesus, would increase, that I would decrease, any distraction would decrease so that we could see him clearly and know him more. God, help us to see afresh the importance of our Savior being the Son of God. It's in His name, the name of Jesus, that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So I hope I've said it enough that you get the main point of the passage. The main point of this sermon is that Jesus is the Son of God. If you take anything, that's what I hope you take with you today. But how exactly do we know that? How does this passage tell us that? Well, there's at least three people in this passage who tell us that Jesus is the Son of God. The first one we read is Jesus is the Son of God according to Mark, the author of our book, Mark. Mark. As he says in verse 1, this is the beginning of the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, the anointed Messiah and Savior, the Son of God. He's saying this because this is where his public ministry began. It's the origin, it's the genesis of his saving life's work. Other gospels may begin with Jesus' presence, his presence in heaven before he even comes to earth. Some gospels begin with Jesus' birth, 
So we're looking at the gospel according to Mark. All right, and we're talking about this book, and the reason Mark calls it the beginning of the gospel is because this is where he chooses to start his narrative about who Jesus is. And the reason he starts here is because the gospel, the good news, is Jesus's ministry. It is his saving work. That is the good news. He proclaims the good news. He is the good news. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, is the Son of God. And it's interesting because in Mark, this idea that Jesus is the Son of God, it comes up very rarely in this book. It's right here at the beginning, and then we don't really see it as much because we're going with Jesus throughout his life. And throughout his life, his disciples didn't seem to quite get the picture of who he was. They didn't quite understand that he was the Son of God till after his resurrection. In Mark's gospel, uh, he emphasizes that Jesus is a human. He emphasizes things about Jesus's humanity. But right here at the very beginning, he wants to be very clear, Jesus is the Son of God. Now, we could move on there, but since it's our first week, I think it's important we understand who Mark is. Why is this important? Why are we listening to this random guy, Mark, tell us about who Jesus is? Who is Mark? Well, he was an early follower of Christ. He grew up in the city of Jerusalem, and we know a little bit about him because believers would meet in his mother's house. We see this in Acts 12. This is talking about Peter. Peter went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and they were praying. We're also told that Mark traveled with the Apostle Paul. However, they had a little bit of a falling out. Mark left their missionary journey early, and so when Paul was going to go again, he and his friend Barnabas had a disagreement with whether or not Mark should go with them. We see here Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought it best not to take with them, the one who had withdrawn from them, who had not gone into the work. However, we read later, he and Paul were restored to one another, and in this very last letter that Paul writes, some of the very last words we have from him in the book of 2 Timothy, he tells Timothy, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. So that's who Mark is, an early believer. He knew Peter, he knew Paul, he knew these people going on and what was going on at this time, but why does this book matter? Now, you'll hear me refer to this book as Mark or the Gospel of Mark, and that's, that's all right. The proper title, though, here is it's the Gospel, it's the Good News According to Mark. It's a book about good news. And it's believed by many scholars to be the very first gospel we have. The first time, perhaps, somebody wrote down this good news of who Jesus is, exploring his life, explaining who he was to others through the written word. It may have been written from the city of Rome as early as the 50s or 60s AD. That's just perhaps a little over 20, 30 years after Jesus lived, died, and rose again. Mark was said to be very close to Peter. In fact, some tradition says that he was Peter's interpreter and that his book of Mark is he's recording Peter's thoughts about Jesus. Uh, We see a a hint of this. Peter says in his book, she who is at Babylon, he's talking about churches that are in Rome, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. He had a very close relationship with Peter. And some of that makes sense, because as we go through this book, we're going to see some stories that have to do with Peter. But in every one of those, any noble thing about Peter is not emphasized at all. Peter wants all the focus directed on Jesus Christ. 
And so in this book, Mark, perhaps getting this information from Peter, he presents the identity, the character, and the teaching of Jesus. He wants to spur people to follow him as a disciple. He takes time to explain some Jewish customs of the day to draw all people into the story. He seems to be particularly thinking about Greek-speaking Romans, people who maybe didn't know anything about Jesus. He wants to convey to them basic facts of the truth. Perhaps this book was meant to encourage young believers in a time of persecution. But before we get too far, we need to recognize something. These gospels, they're not biographies like we would write biographies. We would start with a person was born here, and then this happened, this was their childhood, this is where they went to school, so on and so forth. This isn't a biography. Mark is focused on Jesus' character, his actions. He's not looking at every background detail of what happened in his life. He's examining specific events with a purpose to prove that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who suffered, died, and rose again. And it's in this portrayal of Jesus' actions through Mark's words that we come to understand who he is. This is how God has revealed to us who Jesus is. And so that may challenge some of our preconceptions or what we expect Jesus to be or to do. We're seeing how Mark presents Jesus in inspired scripture from God. The reason I'm spending the time emphasizing this is because we are hearing from God how he wants Jesus to be presented. Now, there may be a uh, visual medium perspective of Jesus you enjoy. Maybe there's a movie about Jesus you really like or a TV show that you really enjoy. And that's fine to watch those things and enjoy those things. But we have to recognize that as good as those things may be, they are not the Bible. No show, no movie is perfect. They are fiction inspired by truth. At the best, some of them maybe go word to words from the Bible, but that's even then truth dramatized, changed, brought to our eyes through visual. Now, these things can help us. Maybe they help us picture the reality of God's word, and that's, that's wonderful, but we need to see Jesus as he's presented in Scripture. If you think of Jesus and you think of an actor in your mind, we need to change that perspective to make sure when we think of Jesus, we think of the reality here in God's word. We should let God's word be the primary source of our image of who Jesus is. And let me tell you, if you make that commitment as we start looking at this book, if you put your preconceptions aside, then God's word will change you through your time in the gospel of Mark. You will not be the same for having studied God's word. Even if you've been a Christian for decades, if you put, okay, this is who I think Jesus is, I'm going to put it aside and see what God says, you will discover something new, fresh, wonderful about who your Lord and Savior is. How do you do that? Well, one scholar named Robert Stein suggested this way, with every account in Mark, one should ask, what is Mark teaching about Jesus in this passage? What is Mark teaching about? about Jesus. And that's what we're going to do each week. Each message is going to be, what is Mark teaching about Jesus? Why is that important to us? So for today, Mark begins with, this is the beginning of the gospel, Jesus is the Son of God, but what does that mean? Well, the rest of the book is going to flesh that out. So Mark tells us Jesus is the Son of God, but he very quickly moves on to someone else. He moves on to John the Baptist. So not only Mark tells us that Jesus is the Son of God, but John the Baptist tells us that 
as well. In verses 2 through 3, there's quotes from the Old Testament. The, Mark is quoting the book of Malachi, chapter 3, verse 1. He's also quoting Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 3. That's why he says Isaiah, because he's the more prominent prophet. He may also be referencing a phrase from the book of Exodus, Exodus 23. But these verses speak of a prophecy of a messenger who's sent before the face, sent behead, ahead of the Messiah to prepare the way for him. This messenger's message is prepare the way of the Lord, make straight the path before him, clear the road because the Messiah is coming. Verses 2 and 3 say, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. See this emphasis on preparing the way, clearing the way. Um, in the early church, we read that believers were known as the way. Maybe it's coming from this prophecy. They were seeing themselves as following the way of Jesus Christ. But regardless, this messenger here, our author is going to make clear, is John the Baptist. And so we could say that there's another witness here. The Old Testament prophets have said who Jesus is by setting John in front of them to be his messenger. And this was a role that John was assigned from birth. When an angel is speaking to John's father, the angel tells him what his son will do. It says, John, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit, the power of Elijah, another prophet, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And then when John was born, his father said, you child will be called the prophet of the Most High. You will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. And how did John do this? Well, Mark tells us. Verse 4 tells us that John proclaimed a baptism of repentance and forgiveness for the remission of sins. He was proclaiming, baptized, repent, turn from sin, and be baptized, be forgiven. This is the same mission that Jesus will have. He called people to be baptized as a sign that they had turned away from sin, they had repented, and they were ready to get right with God. It's not that their baptism earned forgiveness, they had to do it, to get into heaven. No, it was showing their commitment to God. And this message drew people in. Verse 5 tells us, it says, all of the country of Judea, all Jerusalem, probably not meaning literally every single person, but huge crowds of people were coming to hear John. They were preparing for the coming of the Messiah. And this is interesting because what John is saying is he's saying repentance, forgiveness. He's giving a message of judgment. He's saying, you have not followed God rightly. You need to turn. But this message is drawing crowds and crowds of people. God used John greatly. But we're just about to see he's going to fade from the scene very quickly before the glory of his Lord and Savior. The people, though, for now are coming to the wilderness to turn away from sin and enter the true promised land of God's forgiveness. Verse 6 tells us that he wore traditional prophet's attire, clothed with camel's hair and a leather belt. He ate the food that prophets ate, locust and wild honey. He was one of their number. 
His actions were a protest against the material-centered world around him. His commitment was to God. The book of Hebrews speaks about people like John the Baptist. It says they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. It says of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens, caves of the earth. This is the man God chose. But what did he say? How did he say that Jesus was the Son of God? Well, we read that in verse 7. He preached that Jesus was mightier, greater, and more powerful than him. He says he was not worthy in comparison. He preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. He says, this person is so great, I don't even deserve to have the role of the lowliest servant. It was the lowliest servant in the house who would take time to take people's sandals off. Now, we may say that that doesn't seem all that strange, but think about it. It was 2,000 plus years ago. You wore sandals, you walked through the street. There's not public waste system there. All Everything, let's just call it junk, is in the road there. Then you walk through it. And then you, the lowliest servant, have to take off those shoes. John's saying, even if I bowed down to do that, I am not worthy compared to this one who is to come. And this idea of John saying, not worthy to, to take the strap of his sandals off, this is used several times in Scripture. John, the authors of Scripture show John saying this more than once. We see in John 1, 26, in 27, he says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. John was very clear. There's a huge crowd of you coming to listen to me, but I'm not the main attraction. I'm not the one you're looking for. Thanks for being here, but there's a better show coming soon. Uh, Pastor R.C. Sproul, who passed away a few years ago, he was saying, it says that John was saying basically, do not get excited about me. Get excited about the one I'm pointing you to, the one who is the Messiah, the one who is the Son of God. Here we see John's humility. He understood his role and his place. If you've been around the church for a while, you know that one of my favorite passages of Scripture is how John describes himself compared to Jesus. When Jesus finally gets on the scene and people are following him, this is what John says in John 3.30, he must increase, but I must decrease. He, Jesus, must increase, I must decrease. As one scholar, R. Kent Hughes, put it about John, he says, John was a man of sublime downward mobility, just as his poor apparel suggested. We often praise somebody who has upward mobility, somebody who's doing things, making a name for themselves. That was not John the Baptist. He had a name, and he wanted to push it aside so that Jesus could increase, that people would see him. Why? What was so special about Jesus? Well, John tells us in verse 8, his baptism was just water. Jesus gives the Holy Spirit. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He gives the Holy Spirit. This was an Old Testament promise from God. Jesus fulfills what scriptures like Ezekiel 11 say. This is God speaking. God says, I will give them, my people, one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh. I will give them a heart of flesh 
that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. John the Baptist offered external water, but Jesus offered an internal transformation to change people from the inside out. John can put you in some water, but Jesus, the Son of God, he can put you in a right relationship with God. He can make you become a part of his people. This is what John said. This is how he pointed to Jesus. But it wasn't just what John said. He also saw evidence that Jesus is the Son of God. We see this in verses 9 and 10. They tell us Jesus came from his hometown of Nazareth to be baptized by John. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, if Jesus is so much better, why would he do this? Why would he come to John? Well, it doesn't fully flesh that out first, but there's a couple of reasons we can draw. He supported John's message. He also identified with his people, those who would follow after Jesus by being baptized. It began his ministry. Now, while baptism symbolizes how we die to sin, Jesus didn't have sin, but he still modeled our calling to follow him. Baptism pictures us dying to sin and being raised to walk in a new life. This is what Jesus does for us. And so he shows us this is the way for us to go. This is a humbling realization. Jesus didn't need to do that. He could have said, I'm God, you all get baptized. But no, he modeled that for us. He chose to associate with us. So John sees this, and then he also sees the miraculous response of the Lord. The beginning of verse 10 says, when he, Jesus, came out of the water, immediately he, I think it's going out that John the Baptist, saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him, Jesus, like a dove. John saw this, and so it adds to his testimony. We don't have it right here in this book, but if we look over in the Gospel of John, John talks about this moment. John bore witness. He said, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove. It remained on him, on Jesus. I myself did not know him, but he, God, who sent me to baptize with water, said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And so what does John say? He says, I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So Mark, the author of our book, tells us Jesus is the Son of God. This prophet chosen by God says, yes, Jesus is the Son of God. But both of them pale in comparison to the third witness we have here. God himself says Jesus is the Son of God, according to God. As we just read, verse 10 speaks about what happens when Jesus comes out of the water. When he came out of the water, immediately something happened. And just to think ahead, since we're going through this book, that immediately is an important word because in the Gospel of Mark, we'll see that word at least 41 other times. Mark conveys Jesus as a man of action, a man on a mission, and he calls us to the same mission. But what what happened here in this moment when Jesus came out of the water? Well, we're told that he, probably John, but also Jesus, saw the heavens being torn open, opening, parted, split apart. 
He looked up as soon as out of the water, and the heavens seemed to be opening before him. What's the point of that? Well, it's showing special access Jesus has to God the Father. The people who followed God in the Old Testament, they longed for God to open the heavens and come down to them. We can read in the prophet Isaiah, they say, Isaiah 64, Oh, that you would rend or tear the heavens and come down, God, that the mountains might quake at your presence. As when fire kindles brushwood, when fire causes water to boil, may you open this to make your name known to your adversaries that the nations might tremble at your presence. God, we want you to open heaven and come to us. And here, here at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, that's exactly what happens. I like how one pastor, Jason Meyer, puts it. He says, some people use the phrase, all hell is breaking loose, things are going wrong. But the picture here is so much better. Mark is saying that all heaven is breaking loose in this moment. Friends, in Jesus, heaven came down to us. Heaven came down to earth because Jesus always had access to his heavenly Father and his presence. And now, after Jesus' death, those of us who know him, who follow him, we also have that same access to God. In our text, verse uh, 10, it says the heavens were torn open. That same verb shows up at the very end of the gospel of Mark, the very end when Jesus dies. Mark 15, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. A curtain that showed that sinful people couldn't relate to God. Jesus broke that because he brought heaven to us. He gives us access to God. And if that's not enough, then we are told that the Holy Spirit descended on him, descended on Jesus like a dove. Again, verse 10, saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Now, I, I need to take a moment to do a little bit of, of, a, of a side trail here, but let me be very clear about this. What, what I'm about to say is not the main point. The main point is Jesus is the Son of God, and I'm coming right back to that. But this right here is not the main point. Repeat after me, this is not the main point. <laughs> okay, if this is what you leave with, you're missing the message. The point is, Jesus is the Son of God, okay? The only reason I'm talking about this is because we're in this passage right here. So if we look at the words here, it says, the Spirit was descending on him like a dove. That word like, if you remember English class, is what's known as a simile. It's a comparison it's reminding us of something. It's not literally the same thing. If you look at someone, you say, oh, their smile was shining like the sun. The sun's rays are not coming out of that person's mouth. We're saying their smile is bright. If you're eating something and you say that tastes like chicken, you're not eating chicken. You're eating something that reminds you of chicken. So in this moment, the Holy Spirit's descending. It's not that the necessarily, could have been, but it's not necessarily that the Holy Spirit physically looked like a dove or even visibly was a dove. The idea here is more the Spirit gracefully descended, hovered like a dove rather than just looked like it. That, that's the thrust he's going for here. The Holy Spirit descends gently, gracefully. If you want to think about this, uh, 
if you live locally, you may get this. If not, bear with me for a second. Have you ever heard of the Peregrine Falcons at the Rachel Carson building, downtown Harrisburg? There's this tall skyscraper, and there's a nest of Peregrine Falcons that live up there. You can even go online and watch them on the live stream footage. You can see them there. Well, Peregrine Falcons are some of, if not the fastest animals on earth. When they dive at something, they've been clocked going up to 240 miles per hour. So that's not how the Holy Spirit came. He did not dive bomb like a peregrine falcon. No, the author told us that he descended like a dove, gently showing his father's love and care for his people. Now, to be clear, if if you want to draw a picture of the Holy Spirit as a dove, if you own a picture in your house you really like of the Holy Spirit as a dove, that is perfectly fine. I'm just saying that's not what the Scripture is emphasizing here. The point it's making is that all three members of the Trinity are present in this moment right now. We're going to read in verse 11 about the God the Father speaking, declaring who Jesus is. Jesus is being baptized, and the Holy Spirit is gracefully descending like a dove. That's the emphasis here. Not every time you draw the Holy Spirit, it must be a dove. No, all three members of the Trinity are here to prove that Jesus is the Son of God. God in three persons. They're one essence, but three persons. You may say, why are you even taking the time to talk about this, Pastor John? Why is it important that God in three persons, that God, all this is happening right here? Because it's important to understand who Jesus is. Sometimes we talk about Jesus and God as if they're opposed to one another. God made all these rules. We don't follow these rules, but thank goodness for Jesus. He was there. He stood in our place. When God wants to hurt us, Jesus stops him. That, that's, that there's a small element of truth in that, but it's missing the point that both God and Jesus have the same mission, the same purpose, the same desire to show grace and love to people. So here the text tells us what's happening. The Spirit descended on or into him. And what's happening here? Well, again, fulfilling Old Testament Scripture. Isaiah 11 says about the Messiah, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. It's not that Jesus became God here, but he was empowered, declared to be God's representative. His human nature was anointed for the purpose God had for him. He was commissioned, dedicated for his mission of creating a new people. That's what happened here. That's how his disciples understood what happened. We can hear Peter himself tell us this. In Acts 10, Peter says, You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. What happened at that baptism? How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit, and with power. He went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. That's what's happening here. Jesus is commissioned, renewed, empowered to do what God had called him to do. And if we still don't get the point, then a voice from heaven comes to make sure we're not missing it. In verse 11, a voice came from heaven you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. God calls Jesus his beloved 
son. It's what God calls Jesus when he speaks to him in this gospel. If we want to think about an Old Testament story, you may remember Abraham, the the patriarch of the faith. Like Abraham loved his son Isaac, but was willing to sacrifice him. So God loves Jesus, but also sacrificed him, this time actually for our sins. And so God says he is eternally well-pleased with Jesus and in Jesus. Everything Jesus does pleases God and brings him joy. Again, fulfilling the Old Testament, Isaiah 42 says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. And since the soul delights, he says, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. God approved of Jesus, approved of his person, approved of his baptism, approved of his life. He was the only person fully approved by God. As the Apostle Paul would write, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That's the message of this beginning of Mark, is Jesus is the Son of God. But you may ask, so what, Pastor? What does that have to do with my life today? What does that mean for me? What does it mean for Jesus that he's the Son of God? I think there's two implications that we can think about and apply to our lives. The first is, since Jesus is the Son of God, it means that he will rule. He will rule. If Jesus is God's Son, then he is the kingly prince of his Father's kingdom. As the book of Psalms says, I will tell you the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you, ask of me, I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. He rules over all things and the day is coming when all will see that Jesus is king over all. And so the question that should lead us to ask ourselves is if Jesus will rule because he is the son of God and in many ways he's ruling now, is he my king now? Is he my master now? Is he the one who is in control of my life? If he's not, then you're one of those John the Baptist was speaking to. We need to repent, turn from sin and turn toward him. But if you say, yes, I believe he is my king. He is my ruler. The application doesn't stop there. Think about what that means. If he rules over all, if he is in control, then that means he is faithful to his people and we don't need to worry about what happens in this life. We can trust him. He's in control. When things go wrong, when we don't understand what's happening, we can trust him. He rules and he is faithful. He is in control. The second implication we can draw from this is not only will he rule, but since he is the son of God, that means he is able to and he will save. He will save. This is what the rest of the book of Mark will unpack, that Jesus, God's son, will be our perfect substitute sacrifice for sin. Because we sin and fell away from God, he came, lived perfectly, died for us. He died so that we might have salvation, and eternal life. We read this verse a little earlier, before the sermon started. John 6, 40 says, This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And the result is, God will save. I will raise Him up on the last day. 
The way we respond to this is by believing in Jesus, trusting in Him, because this salvation can only be found in Jesus Christ. The Apostle John also wrote a letter known as 1 John, and this is what he says. This is the testimony. God gave us eternal life. How? This life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So to put that question I asked before about is He your King, let me phrase it a different way. Do you have the Son? If you have the Son, you have eternal life. If you don't, then you need Him. He is the only salvation to be found. Mark, John the Baptist, and God are united in this message. Jesus is the Son of God. What have you done with that truth? If you don't know Him, then I pray that you would turn from sin, call out to Him today. God, save me. Come to me. Help me to know you. And if you do know him and you do know Jesus is the Son of God, well then, let's praise him together because he alone is worthy.